Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. We're having a chat about the first voyage undertaken by the famous British explorer Captain James Cook. Now, all the Aussies listening will be very familiar with this bloke's name, of course. He is often the person credited with having discovered Australia, and this is, of course, completely untrue. Not only was he not the first person to discover Australia, as obviously Indigenous Australians have been living here for tens of thousands of years, He wasn't even the first European to visit, but all the same, even if he wasn't the first European to land on Australia, he was the bloke who claimed Australia for Britain, and this was instrumental in kicking off the British colonisation of Australia. That was, largely speaking, a pretty bloody awful thing to have happened, as we talked about in episode 239, the colonisation of Australia, get across it. Um, And in that episode, you actually might remember us touching upon Cook's role in the whole process of colonisation back there in, in episode 239. But today, we're taking a narrower view than we did back in that episode. We're going to be talking about Captain Cook specifically, his early life and what led him to become a man of the sea. And then we'll get stuck into his first uh, his first voyage. Cook went on three voyages in his lifetime, three major voyages. Uh, but the one I want to go into, uh, into detail on today is the, is the first voyage. We will talk about the second and third next week. But uh, I want to talk about the first voyage today uh, because it's a very big part of my nation's history. But the other reason I want to talk about it is because I want to shine a bit of a light on, on Captain Cook and explore his life and his legacy with a level of nuance. Because it's very easy to fall prey to the narrative that, you know, he's, he's a national hero, discovered Australia, bloody get around him, blah, blah, blah. Um, But conversely, it's also very easy to decide that he, like everyone else who aided in the process of colonisation, is irredeemably evil. And I don't want to sound like an enlightened centrist here, because I certainly am not that, but the truth with Cook is actually somewhere in the middle. He did do a lot of good in the world for all of the awful things that his voyages enabled. And so like so many other figures from history, Cook has a, uh, a mixed legacy that is very difficult to properly evaluate, but we'll try to all the same. I don't know how well we'll do, but you know, we'll, we'll give it a crack. This week, we will talk about his first voyage and its consequences. Then next week, we'll come back with a story of his second and third voyages. We'll hear about his rise through the ranks of the British Royal Navy, the special mission that he was given aboard the ship Endeavour in 1768. Uh, And we'll hear what was written on the secret sealed orders that were given to him as he set sail. We'll talk about his exploration of the east coast of Australia, how as a skilled navigator and cartographer, he made maps and charts, the likes of which had never been seen of places all across the South Pacific. We'll talk about his adoption of pioneering ideas in maritime science to keep his crew safe and healthy, encouraging great great change throughout the entire naval industry. And of course, we will talk about the lasting consequences of his first voyage, especially the consequences that were felt by the Indigenous people of places like Australia. But before we begin, a quick thank you to Lena, who wrote in behalf of her two young sons. They enjoyed the story of the Great Emu War, episode 75, one of the more ridiculous chapters of Australian history get across it. And these boys wanted a bit more Australian history. They wanted to learn about Captain Cook. So here we go. Thanks very much, Lena, and you blokes for getting in touch. Strap yourselves in. It is time for the tale of Captain Cook's first voyage. Here we go. We're going all the way back. Here. We're going all the way back 
1728 to the uh, well. You can you can go you can go and have a listen to episode 236 of the Gregorian calendar, and and you'll know why we're, we're you know why I'm saying we're we're going back to either the 7th of November or the 27th of October, depending on which calendar you ask. Anyway, that's when young James Cook was born, the son of. Uh, Oh, the son of James Cook and his wife, Grace, the second of their eight kids, obviously named after his dad. James Senior was Scottish, but he'd moved down to England to a town in Yorkshire called Martin. That's where his wife, Grace, was from. And it was there that young James grew up until he was about eight years old when his family moved from Martin to work on a farm in a village called Great Ayton. And they settled down there for good. In later life, his parents ended up in a very famous little cottage in Great Ayton. People still argue today about whether Cook himself actually lived there uh, he may have moved out before they moved into this particular cottage, but you can still go and visit the cottage today. Uh, however, if you want to do so, you shouldn't head to Great Ayton because you won't find it there anymore. Instead, you will have to head to the Fitzroy Gardens in Melbourne, Victoria, the greatest city on earth. Yes, the cottage was eventually shipped over to Australia brick by brick in 1934 and was rebuilt. It's well worth a visit if you're ever in my hometown. Anyway, Cook himself went off to school in Great Ayton and immediately stood out as a very clever kid indeed. By the time he was a teenager, he was excelling himself, particularly in mathematics. Uh, But all the same, he was put to work on the farm that his old man managed when he was 13. Uh, But this did not get in the way of him improving his ability with numbers, as as we'll talk about extensively throughout this entire episode. He really did have a gift for numbers. This was what made him such an enormously skilled navigator, a pioneering cartographer, uh, something that went on to become a hallmark of his career as as a man of the sea. Anyway... Farm work didn't suit young Cook, it seems, because when he was 16, he left home and he headed to a little fishing village on the coast called Staithes. It's not too far from Great Ayton. And there he worked as a grocer's apprentice. However, while in Staithes, it's thought that Cook, like so many before him, heard the siren call of the sea. He felt the salt wind on his face, heard the snap and billow of the sailcloth, and decided that a life of eating salt, pork, and hardtack, yes, that's the life for me, he said to himself. So he gave up on his apprenticeship as a grocer and instead moved to Whitby, a larger port town, and there was apprenticed on a fleet of merchant vessels, colliers, sailing up and down the English coast hauling coal. And it's here that his natural affinity for numbers came to the fore. While an apprentice sailor, he studied trigonometry, geometry, algebra, as well as navigation and astronomy. And he proved himself to be pretty bloody good across all of these disciplines. And these skills were absolutely essential for anyone hoping to act as a senior officer or even as a captain on a ship. So Cook, aided by the talent for mathematics that he had, he was well on his way, even as a young bloke. And it wasn't long before he was excelling himself on the high seas. He finished up his apprenticeship. He got a job in the Merchant Navy sailing on trading ships and very swiftly rose through the ranks. He was a master's mate at the age of 24. And three years later, he was actually offered the command of a ship in his own right. So he's done very well for himself, particularly as his ascent was purely merit-based. He wasn't born into the aristocracy or anything. He's just the son of a farm labourer. He didn't have rich parents to buy him a commission on a ship. So our boys come good here. I mean, good on him. But here's the interesting part. He actually didn't stick around in the merchant navy. Within a month of the offer of captaincy, 
Cook decided to take a different tack and joined the Royal Navy instead, the Navy Navy with guns and cannons and stuff, the, the military. And this was a very canny tactical decision. Cook knew that he had the skills to support a high-flying career on the waves, and he decided that the Royal Navy would be a much better bet for career advancement than the Merchant Navy. However, this did mean starting at the bottom of the ladder once again. Obviously, he's got a bunch of experience and whatnot, but he is still resetting much of the progress he's made, you know, like a, sort of like a, a new save file on a different server here. But he did choose a good time to, uh, well, I was going to say jump ship, but not jump ship so much as jump from one ship to a different ship, I suppose, uh, as it was 1755 when he joined up to serve in the Navy, and 1755 was a period of great military tension throughout Europe and its colonies, and one year later in 1756, the Seven Years' War would kick off, a war sometimes described as the first global war. Very interesting war indeed, so much to talk about, fought in Europe, in the Americas, Asia, the Pacific, even in Africa, the first time a war had spread across so much of the globe like that. Anyway, Cook warmed up for the Seven Years' War by serving as an able seaman before a quick promotion, once again to master's mate, enjoying his country's national pastime in fighting the French, going after their ships in 1755 before the war really took off. And another promotion saw him rise to the rank of bosun. Then he passed his master's examination in 1757, meaning that he was now accredited to command a ship of the Royal Navy. And it wasn't long before he was given command of a vessel, HMS Pembroke. And in this, he sailed over to North America to aid the British efforts in the colonial war being fought there. The French and Indian War, as it's often known, usually folded into the Seven Years' War more broadly. Cook was involved in the capture of the French fortress of Louisbourg uh, and the siege of Quebec City, two key battles that helped to wrest Quebec away from the control of the French, a foundational aspect of the modern-day nation of Canada. And Cook, during this time, also showed his remarkable aptitude for navigation, cartography and surveying as he mapped out things like the entrance to the St. Lawrence River, greatly aiding the British as they continued to take the fight to the French colonies. And his talent for surveying and cartography, it did not go unnoticed. It was put to further use as we move into the 1760s. He was tasked with mapping the coastlines of Newfoundland and southeast Labrador. Not an easy task, let me tell you. If you've ever gone and had a look at a map of Newfoundland, I mean, you can go and look at the map that Cook himself made. Newfoundland has an intricate and jagged coastline, a very difficult task to achieve, but Cook after making several difficult voyages over many years, he did manage to map this coastline out, and by 1767, he had completed his cartographic work on the coastlines that had been assigned. And, you know, you might be thinking, just in case, just in case you think at this stage, all right, sure, what's the big deal? He drew a map, right? Let me tell you this. Cook's maps of this area, this region, were still used well into the 20th century. That's how good these maps were. That's how accurate they were. He was a groundbreaking surveyor, extremely talented. His maps were massive. They were detailed. They were rigorously accurate. This bloke knew how to draw a map. And as I say, they were used for hundreds of years, even after his death, because of how good they were. But that's not all that Cook did while he was sailing around Newfoundland. He also used these voyages as an opportunity to get some very serious scientific research done. 
principally of the astronomic variety. Most importantly, he observed and recorded a solar eclipse in 1766 and used his results to calculate the longitude of his position in Newfoundland. So, despite joining the Royal Navy with the intention of developing a career rising through the military ranks, Cook's time sailing about during and after the Seven Years' War actually got him attention from an altogether different area, and this is where his career really took off. Cook's proficiency with surveying and the quality of his cartographic output drew the notice of the British Admiralty, who at the time were looking to expand a program of global exploration. And Cook had demonstrated that he had what it took to not just take accurate surveys of uncharted land, but also produce excellent and incredibly detailed maps, and on top of all of that, to do it under very difficult circumstances. Cook's voyages around Newfoundland had not been easy, as I I mentioned, but he really had excelled himself as a ship's master while producing all of these maps, and so after he returned to Britain in the late 1760s, the British Admiralty got in touch with him, and they commissioned him to take command of a scientific voyage to the Pacific Ocean this time, in order to observe the transit of Venus that would be taking place in 1769. Long-term listeners of the show will remember poor old Guillaume Le Gentil, episode 39, Get Across It. He had some very bloody bad luck with his efforts to observe the transit, so let's hope uh, let's hope uh, Cook's luck is a little bit better than poor old Guillaume's here. Anyway, Cook was, uh, was keen as mustard to get back out on the sea and explore the globe, so he keenly agreed, uh, especially when he was offered a promotion once again to lieutenant, and on top of this, given a bonus of 100 guineas from the British Royal Society, who were very pleased with his work so far, particularly all the astronomical and eclipse stuff, and they wanted more of it. So, Cook was sent off to the other side of the world with orders to sail to Tahiti, part today of modern-day French Polynesia, but back then still squabbled over by various European powers, while it was obviously, you know, still home to tens of thousands of, uh, of Tahitian locals. Anyway, over there, Cook would set up shop and observe the transit of Venus. Very important event that would help to calculate the distance between the sun and the earth. Again, more details on that in, uh, in episode 39. And setting sail with Cook were 73 crew members, as well as 12 Royal Marines. Uh, And in in addition to all of these blokes, there was a sizable contingent of scientists coming along for the ride too. There was Charles Green, an astronomer. Uh, There was a botanist named Joseph Banks, very famous fellow, went on to be the president of the Royal Society for over four decades. Interesting bloke. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to him. We're going to talk about him in greater detail later on. But uh, he also brought along seven others, two naturalists, two artists, a secretary, two manservants. Anyway, the ship, the Endeavour, was loaded up with 18 months worth of provisions. And it set sail from Plymouth in England on the 26th of August, 1768. Now, this voyage was important for many reasons. Uh, On this voyage, Cook charted much of the coastline of New Zealand. It's the first recorded instance of Europeans making contact with the east coast of Australia. But perhaps more important than any of this is that this voyage marked the beginning, in a very real way, of the British colonisation process of this part of the world. And therefore... It is an enormously important part of the history of Australia, a foundational part of Australia's history, which we'll talk about in greater detail once Cook actually arrives. But that's a while away for now. 
He's off to Tahiti, a massive journey, halfway around the world, off he goes. After a brief stop in Rio, he rounded Cape Horn at the bottom of, uh, of South America uh, and then headed off across the Pacific to Tahiti. And the Endeavour arrived there on the 13th of April, 1769. Very little to report about the journey to Tahiti. Seems like it all went quite smoothly. And after arriving, they had a couple of months until the transit. And so Cook made landfall, said g'day to the Tahitian chief with whom European powers enjoyed reasonably good relations and set up shop on the northern coast of the island, a, a point that is still known today, very appropriately, as Point Venus. Unfortunately, the observations didn't go well. It was, uh, it was a clear day, no clouds or anything. However, it seems like the instruments that Cook, Green and one of Banks's naturalists had brought failed them. They couldn't reconcile the differences between the observations that they all made and realised very quickly that their data was riddled with problems and issues and errors. So, so they stuffed all that up a bit. Oops, lucky. I mean, yeah, lucky you've got blokes like Le Gentil off doing a, a stellar job to make up for it. But... With that behind us, we move now to the much more exciting part of Cook's first voyage because he hadn't just been given orders to observe the transit of Venus from Tahiti. No, no. He had also been given, as I mentioned in the intro, sealed orders that were not to be opened until after the transit of Venus. So that's what Cook did. He opened up the sealed orders. He discovered his new assignment and his assignment was to sail through the South Pacific in search of an as yet undiscovered southern continent, which was believed to exist, Terra Australis Incognita. And I'm not talking about Australia here either. No, Cook knew about that continent, as did all the other European explorers. It was known as New Holland at this point in history. The west and northern coasts had been charted by the Dutch. No, I'm talking instead about Antarctica which had been hypothesised to exist for centuries without a lot of proof, mind you. People just kind of thought it would be there, mainly to balance out the continents in the Northern Hemisphere, which is not terrific reasoning, but they were... I mean, look, they were right about one thing. It's there. But that hadn't been confirmed at the time. This was what Cook's job was. So he began to hop from island to island in the South Pacific, searching for this mythical continent. A Tahitian bloke named Tupaya asked to come along with him and Cook accepted. And he was very glad that he did because Tupaya was also a very talented navigator, just like Cook. And on top of that, he was also able to act as a translator with other island communities in the Pacific. Cook sailed south for a long time, almost two and a half thousand kilometres without finding Terra Australis. And once he reached the 40th parallel, he turned west instead, heading towards New Zealand. Now, New Zealand, like New Holland, was also known to European explorers after the Dutch explorer Abel Tasman had visited a century beforehand. But after arriving there, Cook became the very first person known to history to record a circumnavigation of New Zealand's two main islands. And this was important for a few reasons. First of all, his maps were characteristically top-notch. They only had a few small errors. And second of all, circumnavigating New Zealand proved that it wasn't attached to this supposed southern continent. However, his circumnavigation was not without its issues. I'm sorry to say that despite Tupaya doing his best to translate and to act as an intermediary between the European visitors and the Maori locals, Things got ugly and things got violent. 
The first couple of encounters Cook had with the Maori resulted in seven or eight Maori deaths, I'm sorry to say. Cook uh, wrote in his journals about the regret he felt his aim had always been to maintain peaceful and positive relations with Indigenous populations of the places he visited, but he did fail on that account. However, other encounters with the Maori as Cook continued around the New Zealand coastline were, were a little more convivial. Tupaya enabled the Europeans and the Maori to talk and to trade peacefully, but still, it has to be said, the scourge of European colonisation had come to this part of the world. Cook had already claimed many of the other Pacific islands that he'd visited, and while New Zealand wouldn't officially become a British colony until 1840, Cook claimed parts of New Zealand for Britain, and his voyage was very much the harbinger of the spread of British imperialism throughout Australasia. And that continued to be the case after his circumnavigation of New Zealand was complete as he headed west towards, of course, the eastern coast of Australia. Cook intended to travel to Van Diemen's Land, today known as Tasmania, named after Abel Tasman, who had partially charted it, because Cook wanted to investigate to see if it was connected with this mysterious southern continent. Obviously, we know today it is not. However, Strong winds forced him to, to, to take a more northerly course, and so instead, on the morning of the 19th of April, 1770, actually the 20th local time, Cook used the nautical date, a bit different, but uh, I mean, you know, there has been more than enough confusing date chat for the time being on this show, I reckon. Um, on the 19th of April, 1770, land was sighted at what is today known as Point Hicks named after the officer who sighted it. And Point Hicks is, in case you didn't know, the easternmost part of Victoria, my home state. Europeans had arrived on the east coast of Australia and the continent would never be the same again. Cook named the east coast of this continent New South Wales for reasons that still baffle many people to this day. Cook kept detailed journals of all of his voyages and he wrote about calling this part of the world New South Wales, but he didn't really explain why. Initially, he called it New Wales, but then amended it to New South Wales. Apparently, the landscape reminded him of Southern Wales. I mean, look, I've, I'm speaking from ignorance. I've never been to South Wales. But really? The most beautiful country on earth, wide, pristine beaches, beautiful eucalypt forests, sunshine and warm weather, and you're naming it after an area famous for coal mines, castles and cloudy weather? All right, Cook, mate, no idea what's going on there. Anyway, Cook sailed the endeavour up the coast, naming locations and landmarks as he went, charting this unfamiliar coastline until finally deciding to make landfall on the 29th of April in what is today known as Botany Bay. Today, Botany Bay is in southern Sydney. It's the bay that you fly over when you land at Sydney Airport. But back then, it was the land of the Guiagal clan, of the Dharawal people. And I say it was back then, and it still is. Today, it always was, and it always will be. Indigenous Australians have never ceded sovereignty over their land. And even today, well over 20 million Australians still live on stolen land, myself included, I'm sorry to say. And I'm also sorry to say that the first recorded contact between Europeans and Indigenous Australians on the east coast of Australia was a powerful augury 
of what was to come. Two men from the Guiagal tribe came down to the water to investigate these visitors as they came on shore with their boats. And they shouted and they shook their spears at Cook and the others with him. Cook and this landing party were seeking to replenish the ship's water supplies, but the Guiagal men, they weren't having a bar of it. And they continued to make it very clear that they didn't want them coming ashore. Eventually, Cook himself fired a warning shot and one of the Guiagal blokes threw a rock at Cook and his men. So Cook responded by shooting at him, grazing the poor bloke and causing the two Guiagal men to start throwing spears at Cook and his crew. A third shot from Cook resulted in the Guiagal men fleeing and Cook and his company were able, after all, to come ashore and replenish their water supplies. But water is not all that they took. They took spears and other artefacts from the nearby Guagal huts, leaving beads in exchange. And this first encounter between the British and the Indigenous people of Australia is, I'm sorry to tell you, emblematic of the way in which the British and later white Australians have treated the First Nations people of this country ever since. To this day, There are vast inequalities and injustices that Indigenous Australians have to deal with on a daily basis, entrenched into Australian history, culture and society ever since that first encounter with James Cook and the British back in 1770. I'm deeply ashamed of my nation's history when it comes to Indigenous relations and affairs and I want to see more done to rectify and remedy the situation today, a situation that goes back almost two and a half centuries, a situation that today Australians are all too ready to remain ignorant of. Anyway, Cook and the Endeavour remained in Botany Bay for a week. Cook initially wanted to call Botany Bay Stingray Harbour, but after Joseph Banks and his companions gathered all sorts of new botanic specimens from the land around the bay, Cook changed the name, and even today, it's still known as Botany Bay. Cook then continued north, sailing past Port Jackson, across which you will today find the Sydney Harbour Bridge, right next to the Sydney Opera House. And again, as he went, he named different landmarks and locations, observing the fires of the Indigenous populations that lived along the East Coast. On the 11th of June, the Endeavour ran aground on the Great Barrier Reef in what is today far north Queensland. The ship was repaired at a location now known as Cooktown, named after, of course, Cook himself. It took seven weeks, but eventually the ship was repaired. And the time hadn't been wasted either, as Joseph Banks and his mates had been busy collecting more botanical samples to take back to Britain, a huge number of them, thousands of them. Banks introduced acacia, eucalyptus, and, of course, the Banksia to the rest of the world, the last plant there still bearing his name today. And during this time, Cook and his men encountered more Indigenous Australians, and I'm happy to say that this time around they had much more peaceful relations with them, although there was a dispute over some sea turtles, of all things, that resulted in Cook ordering more shots to be fired at the Indigenous Australians, resulting in another minor injury. But eventually, the endeavour was back underway and arrived at the northernmost point of Australia, which still bears the name that Cook gave it, Cape York, named after his homeland back in Britain. Cook then landed on an island in Torres Strait, known even today as Possession Island, and it was there that he claimed official possession of the entire eastern coastline that he'd just explored for Britain. 
disregarding the fact that the land was already inhabited, Cook invoked the right of discovery. These and other flimsy justifications for seizing land that had been lived on for centuries, for millennia, this was the foundation of colonialism and imperialism. And I'm sorry to say that Cook invoked these justifications as he claimed Australia for Britain. Right of discovery. Nonsense. You can't discover something that thousands upon thousands of people have known about for thousands and thousands of years. It's like saying Neil Armstrong discovered the moon. Anyway, after leaving Torres Strait, Cook then sailed on towards Batavia in the Dutch East Indies, modern-day Jakarta, Indonesia, and he pulled into harbour there. And it's here that I want to talk about some of the more positive aspects of Cook's voyage up the east coast of Australia, starting with the cartography that he did. We know that Cook is a very skilled navigator and a very talented cartographer, and the maps and the charts that he produced while sailing up the east coast of Australia reflected that. They were accurate, they were well-made, and they provided an enormous amount of information about a part of the world that was a mystery to explorers everywhere. And Cook's exploration of the east coast of Australia gave us all new understandings of this region, not just geographically, but also scientifically. As the scientific contingent of, of, of many had aboard his ship, investigated the flora and the fauna of this part of the world and deepened our scientific understanding and knowledge of the natural environment in which we all live. But perhaps more importantly than this, more important certainly for the men aboard his ship, was something that Cook did that really does set him apart from other sea captains of the time. Quite aside from his remarkable abilities with surveying and navigation and cartography and whatever else, Cook was a man of science, through and through. He was someone who, after his brief stint as a military naval officer, devoted his life at sea to furthering human understanding and knowledge of the world, as is as you can very clearly see, the fact that he captained this scientific expedition all the way across the world. But this devotion to scientific understanding had a huge impact on the history and the development of medical progress, and specifically when it comes to scurvy. Cook arrived in Batavia with zero members of his crew unwell, and with a grand total of two cases of scurvy on the books since he left Britain. This was unheard of. Two cases, not even deaths. The men recovered. Usually after two years at sea, diseases like scurvy would ravage the crew of any ships, and there would, be, there would be multiple deaths every single time. But Cook had listened to the science. You'll remember James Lind, episode 62, Get Across It, his groundbreaking work that told us that access to fruit and vegetables on long sea voyages would stave off scurvy. And despite not knowing exactly why, they didn't understand back then that it was a lack of vitamin C that caused scurvy, Cook listened to what Lind had to say, and he listened to what the Admiralty suggested, and he made his crew eat fruit and vegetables as part of their rations. Too much protest, I will add. He did this by hook or by crook. He took on citrus fruits, which we know today, they're a great source of vitamin C, and he ordered the crew to eat them, which they did under, <laughs> under great duress. Some of them just really didn't want to eat any fruit and veggies. But he also brought sauerkraut on board, pickled cabbage, and the crew were 
even less excited about eating this, which is understandable because sauerkraut is bloody gross. I don't blame them for not wanting to eat it. But do you know how Cook went about getting his crew to eat the sauerkraut? He served it exclusively to begin with at the officers' tables. He served it as though it was a delicacy reserved for the upper crust only. And then, as time went on, he very generously offered anyone who wanted to try it, you can just have a little bit, just a little bit of sauerkraut as a treat. And now the whole crew, thinking that it's something very special, they're all, they all start clamouring for their share. They all want some as well. And in the end, Cook actually had to ration the sauerkraut that he'd brought on board so as not to run out of it. This is like tricking kids into eating their vegetables. Amazing. What else did he do? Did he scoop up mashed veggies on spoons and fly it into his crew's mouths like aeroplanes? Absolutely bloody ridiculous. But I'll tell you what, it worked. It worked when European ships arrived in Batavia normally. They were filled with sick crew members after months at sea. So Cook having, in his words, not one man upon the sick list, this was quite an achievement. Now, sadly, the good health that the crew enjoyed wasn't to last. Batavia was not a very healthy city. It was filled with sick people, both locals and travellers. And one particularly malicious illness that hung around there like a bad smell was malaria. So despite, despite arriving with an empty sick list, the list filled up very quickly after landing in Batavia. Malaria ravaged Cook's crew, as did other diseases like dysentery. So he didn't have quite as good a run after he had arrived in Batavia. But it has to be said, this was still a monumental undertaking. Getting a crew all the way around the world, years at sea, without any deaths to scurvy, that really does, as I say, set Cook apart from other sea captains of his time. Anyway, after leaving Batavia and setting sail back towards Britain, unfortunately, many aboard the Endeavour died of illness, including Tupaya and Charles Green, the astronomer. But aside from all this illness, the return journey around the southern tip of Africa, the Cape of Good Hope, was largely uneventful. And on the 12th of July, 1771, after two years, 10 months and 17 days at sea, Captain Cook's first voyage came to an end. He had been away for over 1,000 days, and people were very surprised to see him. The unexpected length of Cook's voyage had resulted in many people believing that the endeavour had been lost forever. Either they'd ended up off course and had perished while trying to find their way back to familiar waters, or they'd been sunk by the French. It was really a very big relief to see most of the endeavour's crew arrive back home safely. And the voyage was, back then at least, celebrated as a huge success, and it doubtlessly led to Cook being sent off on a second and third voyage, as we'll have a chat about next week. But in the meantime, back in Britain, Cook was hailed as a hero for leading such a successful expedition, especially after his journals were published, giving the public a full account of the voyage that he'd undertaken. Although I have to say, it was actually Joseph Banks who really enjoyed the fame and the fortune and the limelight. His fame surpassed even Cook's as he came back with around 13,000 botanical samples documenting over 1,400 species that were new to European science. But don't congratulate him too much, however, because not only was he a bit of a precious and difficult bloke, as we'll talk about next week, he was also one of the strongest proponents for the colonisation of Australia with convicts, as you might remember from episode 239, get across it. Anyway, he certainly left his mark on history, Sir Joseph Banks, particularly the science of botany, 
And around 80 plants today are named after him, most famously the wildflower genus Banksia. Anyway, before we wrap up for today, I want to tell you a few things about the consequences of this first voyage of Cook's because it did change the course of history for millions and millions of people in the coming centuries. And it also changed the lay of the land back then in the late 18th 18th century as well. Evaluating Cook's first voyage is a very difficult thing to do because just as it brought about many great advances in science, cartography, medicine, and whatever else, it also directly led to increased British colonial expansion and the needless suffering and death of Indigenous people and their cultures. And of course, on top of that, the economic exploitation of their lands and their resources, sovereignty over which, as I said, has never been ceded. Like so much else from history, the legacy of this expedition is a mixed one, but let's talk in a little more detail about the, the most important consequences of Cook's first voyage. Firstly, scientific progress. Cook enabled all new understandings of the natural world as the team of scientists that he took with him brought new findings and discoveries to the world of modern science. Botany, zoology, geology, ecology, geography, oceanography, banks and all the other nerds that Cook had brought with him deepened scientific knowledge and understanding of the South Pacific in all new ways. Species of plants and animals that were unknown to Western science were revealed to the world at large through the publications made by those who travelled with Cook. And on top of all of this, Cook also greatly influenced the art of seamanship in many ways with this voyage. His skills as a navigator and a cartographer were responsible for the creation of incredibly detailed maps and charts of the South Pacific. And these maps and charts were used in future voyages, not just his own and increased our knowledge and understanding of a part of the world that was, up until then, largely uncharted. Cook also used pioneering techniques and equipment to aid him in keeping meticulously accurate records of his voyage, the latest maritime chronometers, for instance, and Cook's success with these devices helped to normalise the use of naval technology on long expeditions. And additionally, Cook adopted the advice of far-sighted medical professionals like James Lind, and he kept his crew safe from illnesses like scurvy, again, not losing a single crew member to the disease. Today, this might not sound significant, but it was an enormous leap forward in seafaring, and it resulted in sea travel becoming safer for everyone. However, of course, it is impossible to ignore the negative consequences of Cook's voyage. And first and foremost amongst them is the fact that he was, unfortunately, the vanguard of British colonial expansion into this region. After Cook landed in places like Australia and New Zealand and brought home stories of the rich bounty of natural resources they contained, the British were quick to exploit them. Before long, the British sent colonists and convicts to colonise and settle these areas with horrific consequences for the people who already lived there. Indigenous populations in places like Australia, New Zealand and much of the rest of the South Pacific have done nothing but suffer at the hands of British colonisation. Their cultures were destroyed, their lands were stolen, their resources exploited for profit and their people were systematically murdered, 
all in the name of civilization. It doesn't sound particularly civilized to me, but that is the shameful attitude with which my ancestors came to this land centuries ago. And it's a shame that I bear to this very day as one of their descendants. Finally, and very importantly, Cook's voyage had another very notable consequence. Its success resulted in a surge of new expeditions being sent back off to the South Pacific and not just by Britain. European influence swamped the South Pacific in the wake of Cook's expedition and a new generation of navigators charted one of the last remaining unexplored parts of the world inspired by Cook's success. And it wasn't just a new generation either. Cook himself went back again, twice, in fact, as we'll talk about next week. And for someone who spent much of his life in the Pacific, perhaps it's only appropriate that that's where Cook's life also famously ended. But that, my friends, is a story for next time. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Captain Cook's first voyage, and I'm looking forward to getting across the story of the second and the third voyages that he went on next week, and I do hope you'll hang out with me then. Going to leave you with all the boring housekeeping stuff. It's the same every week. I should try to find a way to mix it up or put some prizes, some surprises in or something, but I don't know. Next week, man. Probably not next week either. Anyway, halfhousehistory.net website there, contact form. Great to hear from people as ever. Really good to, to hear from people like Lena. And her two young boys getting in touch, wanting to put in a, uh, a suggestion for a topic. So thank you so much once again to Lena and, uh, and her two little sons who, uh, who, who got in touch. If you want to follow in their exalted footsteps, the contact form on the website is the best place to do that. I read every single email I get, even if I can't reply to each, each and every one of them. If you want to buy some half House History merch, you certainly can. The link is on the website. And of course, thank you so very much to those people supporting me on Patreon. I would love to see people sign up and support the show, gain access to all sorts of behind-the-scenes exclusive content you can't get anywhere else, Uh, all the burps and farts of the uncut episodes, nearly swore in this one as well, if you want to hear me say half of the F word. Um, What else? You can get show notes, which are very useful as study guides, and of course, the exclusive merch that is only available through Patreon and only ever will be available through Patreon. Um, And I think that's about it. Thank you to old listeners, new listeners, listeners that are somewhere in the middle. Special thank you to all the people who are telling their friends about Half House History. Got to get those numbers up. But going to leave you, of course, this week with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to it's not, it's not a it's a question about Australia, not not about the exploration or the colonisation of Australia, but a question about Australia nonetheless. Um, uh, it is it does get very tiring hearing all as an Australian hearing all the jokes about oh you, you, how do you do anything when you're upside down? Why don't you just fall off into space or whatever? But this one actually I thought was was quite a clever twist on on, a, on what is a very tired old uh, trope, I guess, about Australia. Uh, it comes to us from Redditor Skulube, who asks, If I do a push-up in Australia, does it count? <laughs> <laughs>